Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time uh, fellowship and, and prayer, Lord. I uh, pray that you would just lift up the requests that were mentioned. Uh, we give you the glory for the praises, and we ask that you intervene in the, in the requests, Lord. I pray right now for our time that it would be also be profitable, that we would uh, enter into this with open hearts to apply your word. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. To test the genuineness of a diamond, a jeweler will often run it through a series of tests to ensure its authenticity. This can range anywhere from scratch tests to take the stone, you scratch another surface with it, and if it obviously scratches, it's, it's, it's true. It's a true diamond. They can examine it up close with their little jeweler's loops, which is the name of that tiny little monocle that they wear around their necks. I didn't know that until I was getting a... Uh, a ring for Amanda, but it's called a jeweler's loop. So they can examine it through that. One of the things that I've heard that jewelers do is they can take the diamond, they drop it in a glass of water, and the way in which it reflects light demonstrates it to be authentic or not authentic. You can even use a device called a diamond tester. This is something you can actually even buy yourself online. You go to Amazon, type diamond tester in there. It's these things that look sort of like a like a battery-operated meat fork that you like, touch the stone with, and then it tells you if the stone is authentic or not. I, I don't know if they work or not, but you can buy them. <laughs> All of these tests are run on the stone with the intent on examining the, the claim that is behind it. This is, in fact, a true diamond. Now, tests are not exclusive to the realm of gemology. If you didn't know that term... you. You're welcome. People throughout their lives are in constant states of either taking tests or administering tests. When we're younger, we go to school and we're tests on our knowledge and subject areas to determine whether or not we know a particular field of study, whatever we're looking at. We take tests in order to determine whether we're really ready to be driving or not. As adults, we put the claims of companies to the test. I need to know if this is really going to take the coffee stains out of my shirt, because I'm a slob sometimes. So we examine their claims, and sometimes these tests can be life-saving, as in the case of testing our drinking water or food to make sure that they don't contain poisonous substances. Narrowing down further, tests extend to our faith. The world can often tell the difference between a genuine believer and a non-believer, someone who merely claims the name of Christ, by looking at the results of tests run in that person's life. Oftentimes, many people have great confidence in their faith until difficult times arise. How a person handles a difficult struggle shows whether or not their faith is real or imagined. This is echoed in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, when Jesus explained the idea of the results of such tests when he says in Luke 8, 13 and verse 15, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with great joy. And these, having no firm root, they believe for a while, and then in time of temptation fall away. Verse 15, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who heard the word, in an honest and good heart, and hold fast, and bear fruit with perseverance. We're going to be taking a look at this morning a text that examines what it is to deal with 
tests in our life. We're going to be looking at the book of James this morning. James chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. James 1. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 starts, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Before we dig down into the theological aspects of this verse, I first want to deal with verse number 1. Verse 1 identifies the author of our text and the book of James entirely as a man by the name of James. So, in your notes, make sure that James wrote the book of James. It's a shocking revelation, I'm sure. This is the first thing that we see in the text. He identifies himself as the author. Now, historically, there are really four men by the name of James in the New Testament, only two of which were ever are in the running for the authorship of, the, of, of this book. One is James, the brother of John, or James, the half-brother of Jesus. These are the two men who've been proposed as the author of this book. Now, we have like a 99% good idea who wrote this book. I put the 1% in there because, for fun... Now, since New Testament history tells us that James, the brother of John, okay, the, apostle, the apostle John, one half of the dynamic duo known as the sons of Zebedee, was martyred very early on in the New Testament church. We see this account in Acts chapter 12, making it highly unlikely that he could be the author of this book. And that and for a couple of reasons that we're going to get into in a moment. Uh, this leaves James, the half-brother of Jesus, as the most likely candidate for the author of this book. Now, there are some things that we know about James, the half-brother of Jesus. We know that he's introduced early on in the Gospel accounts. We, we see his name mentioned in Mark chapter 6. Jesus is ministering in his home region and in response to his message. They say, is this not the carpenter's son? The son of Mary, the brother of James, there he is, and of Joas and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? Okay, so we know James and Jesus had a larger family than we can sometimes think when we think of his family, because we always picture the manger scene, that small little family. He had a larger family. We also know that he had another well-known brother, Jude. Hey, the author of the book of Jude, I, I don't mean to spoil that for you, but he wrote that book too. Uh, Jude wrote his own book. We also see his name in, the, in Mark chapter 6 when it says the brother of Judas. Jude is an English translation of the Greek name Judas. So, some more Bible trivia knowledge for you. We also know that James initially rejected Jesus' message. We see this in John chapter 7. Verse 5 says, For not even his brothers were believing in him. So we know that James is Jesus' half-brother. We know that he's heard the message and rejected it, but at some point later in his life came to a saving knowledge of who his half-brother really was. We see this throughout the remainder of his life. He goes on to become the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. He becomes known as James the Just for his apparent holiness in, in, in his leading. 
He's referred to as one of the pillars of the early church with Peter and John. We know that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to him in 1 Corinthians 15, and that Paul in Galatians 1 uses the term apostle to describe him. So we know that there was a transition in his life. We are confident in examining some of his language used in the book of Acts with the language used in the book of James, which is another proof to show that the half-brother of Jesus is in fact the author of this book. Just certain ways that he phrases things. Now, what's interesting though, is James refers to himself in a very ambiguous way. He doesn't come out and say, hey, I'm James, Jesus' brother. We shared a room. He had, there's the perfect roommate. He comes out and he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James doesn't pull rank in opening his letter. He doesn't come out and say, hey, I'm Jesus' half-brother, so pay attention to what I have to say. See, James correctly identifies his position before his God and his Lord. And in so doing, underscores the fact and gives his validation to Jesus' claim to be God. He equates his half-brother with the living God by saying that he is a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. If James does this, he doesn't, again, pull rank because he's not going to allow himself to become arrogant or puffed up the fact that he simply shared an earthly mother with his half-brother. He knows that Jesus is God and he knows his position before him, so he correctly identifies himself as a bondservant of the Lord This book has been dated to around AD 44 to AD 49. With pretty confidence that it wasn't written any time after AD 49 because it omits the mentioning of the Jerusalem Council. And that would be an odd thing for him to omit considering he was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. So we've got a pretty good idea when this book is written, who it was written by. And in dating it that way, we also know that the book of James is probably the first New Testament book written. But it was also one of the last New Testament books to be added to the canon of Scripture by the early church. And this was really due to early church leaders not seeing the worth of the book of James. A lot of these men didn't see the gospel in James's words. For example, and this carried on, for example, Martin Luther referred to it as an epistle of straw when comparing it to the more doctrinally full letters of Paul But that really couldn't be further from the truth. You see, the gospel just leaps at you from the book of James. And I'll show you that as we move throughout the text. You see, James is is a very practical book. It's been referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. It deals with practical living. It deals with the concept of examining your life. James doesn't come out and just lay out these huge doctrinal arguments like Paul does. Instead, he lays out a series of I'm going to say tests that one can run in their life to determine whether or not their faith is truly genuine. As if he says, hey, I'm James, a bondservant of Christ. You want to know if you're a believer or not? Listen to what I got to say and match it against your life. This book is full of tests to run in one's life. We see in our text today and the test of perseverance and trials extends all the way through 
the chapter, we see in chapter 2 the test of blames and temptation, the test of response to the word, the test of impartiality, the tests of righteous works. Chapter 3 deals with the test of the tongue. All of these things have to do with, are you who you say you are? If you are, then you should line up with what I'm saying here. And we're going to be taking a look at this morning part of James' first test, the test of perseverance and trials. And we're going to be seeing three parts to this this morning. We're going to be seeing a command, a reason, and a result. A command, a reason, and a result. James ends his introduction of himself. He says, who I am. He says, who I'm writing to, the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. So he's writing to a Jewish believing audience now. He says, who are dispersed, who have been spread out now because persecution has begun So we know who wrote it, who his audience is, and he comes right out of the gate and he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. James begins his letter with a promise. He comes out and he says, hey guys, trials are coming. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. That's not necessarily the promise we would like. We would have liked to, for James to say something, hey, consider it joy if you experience trials. If not, you should be cool too. because You're not having these trials. But he promises us right out of the gate that we will experience trials. They are inevitable. They are unavoidable. D.A. Carson is quoted as saying, if you haven't suffered, you haven't lived long enough. And James writes this passage as an oasis for people to cling to in the midst of difficult times. His trials are promised. It could be in the middle of one. If you haven't had one, one's coming. Because okay, they're promised not just by James, but by God as the actual inspiring author of the book, of all of the books of the Bible. He comes out, says, hello, I'm James. Guess what? Things are going to get uncomfortable. This is not because God is, as one pastor put it, a cosmic killjoy up in heaven trying to decide whether or not he should put stumbling blocks in our way for, you know, for fun. He's using trials. God is using trials in our life to do specific things. James identifies his audience as a dispersed group of Jewish believers now on the run because of persecution. This church had witnessed the martyrdom of Stephen and by now should understand that the Christian life does not going to yield necessarily an easy life. There were real pressures in their life. But what's funny is persecution really hadn't begun yet, and these people had already needed encouragement. See, there was a political threat. Herod Agrippa is now king of Judah, a man who does not look favorably upon the Christians. Okay? There was a social threat. For a Jewish person to come to faith in Christ, the Jewish leaders would put them out of the temple, which was the center of Jewish society. They would be cut off from their people, from purchasing goods from other Jews. There was a familiar threat because because they would be put out of the temple, their families would want to have nothing to do with them for fear that they would themselves would be put out of the temple. They were social outcasts. There was a real physical threat, as seen in the case of the martyrdom of Stephen. And James writes to encourage, this was a difficult time in the early church. 
and more difficult times were coming. These would have been scared people hoping for some relief and they, they receive a letter from one of their church leaders. One might expect words of encouragement. Hi, James here. Guys, you're doing great. Just, you know, keep doing what you're doing. That's not what James says. One might expect different words. Instead of getting necessary words of encouragement, they receive a letter full of exhortations. There are over 40 imperatives in the book of James. More than most other books in the New Testament. Imperatives that start off right away with something we don't even want to talk about. Like, I don't want trials in my life. One commentator saying that James's readers could have responded to this in some way. In reading a greeting like this, his readers could have said something like, Oh, gr- how, how nice. A letter of encouragement from Pastor Wacko. <laughs> Who says that in the midst of difficult trial, in difficult times? Hey guys, consider it all joy. Well, James does. God does. Before we discuss what he's really saying, what I want to, what I want to, to tell you, show you is what James is not saying. He's not saying, don't worry, be happy. It's the, they play that song in Publix and it just drives me insane. <laughs> he's not saying that we should meet trials with an encompassing joyful emotion like, this is so great, I can't pay my bills. It's not saying that we should even enjoy being in trials. <laughs> I, they're, re, they're foreclosing on my home. I'm, this is so great. James is not advocating for a callous attitude. That would have been cruel for him to do so. Because trials are not necessarily joyful. And they're not joyful things at all. That's why they're trials. Many times they're devastating. We're now in the month of December. This time of year would have been the second birthday for was going to be Amanda, my second child. But that's not what God had. You don't say to someone who's lost someone, aren't you happy that happened? Aren't you so glad that your family member passed away? That's not what James is saying. It's, it's fine, I got Evie out of the deal, so it's all good. She's fun. So what is James saying? James understood what the author of Hebrews would later go on to write when he said that all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who are trained by it afterwards yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. James is indicating an attitude we are to have in the midst of trials. When facing difficult situations, this is the perspective that we are to have. Far too often we enter trials and tribulations with an attitude that questions God. God, I've done everything you've asked me to do. Why are you letting this happen? 
Well, we encounter trials in our life really for two reasons. One, we live in a fallen world and bad things happen. Job chapter 5, 7, for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Job 14, 1, man is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Psalm 22, 11, be not far from me for trouble is near. There is none to help. Isaiah 8, 22, then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness is glooming. The glooming of anguish and they will be driven away into darkness. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 17 and verse 23, so I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Because all his days, his tasks are painful and grievous, even at night in, the, in his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. We encounter trials because this world is broken. But we will also encounter trials because of our faith. John chapter 15, verse 20. Remember the word I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you keep my word, I will keep yours also. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So since trials are coming, how do we handle them? He says to consider. This is to count. This is the command James is giving. Gives us this command because joy is not the natural human response to difficult situations. The Christian is under divine command not simply to be somewhat joyful in the midst of trials, but to look at them with all joy. One commentator putting it this way, the phrase is variously interpreted by commentators as meaning pure joy, unmixed joy. James is speaking of a unique fullness of joy. That the Lord graciously provides His children when they willingly and uncomplainingly endure trials while trusting Him. Regardless of the cause, type, or severity of distress, He will always use them for our benefit and His glory. It is not because of some sort of religious masochism, but rather a sincere trust in the promise of the goodness of our Lord. That we can look at trials as a welcomed friend, knowing with Joseph... That what may have been meant for evil against us, God meant for good. Only someone walking with the Lord, a believer, has the ability to experience and go through trials with this attitude. A non-believer cannot because they have nothing with which to base their joy on. This is about perspective. Having an eternal perspective. Having a hope that goes and looks far beyond ourselves. As a believer, our hope is found in Jesus. Our trust is in Him. And as Psalm 23 puts it, even in a flood of great waters, they will not overtake us. We are still under the hand of a sovereign God who sovereignly handpicked the difficult situations of our life for us. We are commanded... To have joy. This is an act of our will. Not feelings. Because feeling, our feelings tell us that we should give up. It's too hard. We must be determined to trust in the promises found in verses like Romans chapter 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. And are called according to His purpose. So we see the command. Have joy in the midst of trials. Why? 
because you should have an eternal perspective. Next, we're going to see the reason. Verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. This answers the why question. Why must I be joyful in the midst of trials? What's in it for me? James uses the term knowing. Knowing that the testing of your faith. And this Greek word goes beyond simply knowing or remembering intellectual facts like the Titanic sits 12,000 feet below the ocean floor. Or that Samuel Huntington was the first president of the United States. He was. Read your history books. The term James is using here refers more to an experiential knowledge of knowing. Knowing something from personal experience. A knowledge that's grounded in real life. We see this word used in Mark 13.28. When it's written, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches have already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Jesus is saying, okay, when the fig tree looks like this, you've seen this before, you know that summer's coming. This is an experiential knowledge that he's referring to. And this is the type of knowledge James is referring. We see a variant of this word used in Romans 1 when Paul tells us that all people have an experiential knowledge of their Creator through creation. He says, knowing from personal experience, he said that the testing, this word is different from the word you, Greek word used in verse 2, but it carries with it the same meaning, to prove the genuineness of something. So you look back with experiential knowledge that the testing of your faith, this active and real relationship with the Lord, produces something. It produces endurance. This Greek word translated endurance is most often translated as patience, but the context of this passage is on the end result of patience, which is endurance. Patiently living through a trial, all the while trusting in the Lord has the result, and that result is called endurance. I'm going to say that word a lot in the next like 10 minutes, so I apologize. Our patience produces a staying power in the midst of difficult situations. Just as with somebody who trains to run a marathon, something you'll never see me doing. <laughs> you don't start out running the full 26.2 miles, you build up to it. A runner builds up their endurance, their ability to run distances without vomiting all over themselves. They build up that before they can run the full marathon. That's what this is. That's life. Getting through these situations, building up the endurance to endure more. Even lifelong difficulties. Because life ends and something better comes. I want to show you guys something. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. This is Paul speaking. He says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, he is strong. 
you see this passage, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, expressing his desire to have a, what would be a difficult thing removed from his life. Now remember, this is Paul. He's been shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead. He's been jailed and tortured. And to just give you the scope of, of whatever this was, we don't know what it was. This is what he asked God to take out of his life. And what's interesting is that the Lord doesn't do that. He tells him, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You're going to endure it. And we don't see Paul bring this up again. He gets the perspective and he fleshes it out at the end of that verse where he says that he's content with all of these things because Christ is glorified through them. Paul got it. Paul got the thing that we most oftentimes miss, that there is a reason behind these things. And if nothing else, God is glorified through it. Endurance is a permanent inner quality, as one commentator puts it. With increasing time, a trial is patiently endured. Endurance is a permanent inner quality of strength, which increases each time a trial is patiently endured. Every time we tackle a trial or difficult time in our lives, it produces in us the ability to make it through the next one. Building up of endurance is a process that we can take great hope in because we take great hope in the fact that God knows what He's doing and putting them in our lives. 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common among men. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God knows exactly what He's doing when He picks trials for our lives. John 18, 7 through 9, we see a, a very. A, a, we see the account of Jesus being arrested. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, Therefore, again, he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. And if you seek me, let these men go on their way. Jesus, speaking to the temple guard, said, Hey, I'm here. I told you I'm him. Take me into custody, but let the disciples go. Because he understood these men were not ready for what was going to be coming their way. All of the disciples, with the exception of John, were arrested and martyred. Why wasn't it allowed to happen earlier? Because they weren't ready for it. They weren't ready, and God had something else for them beforehand. But you see Jesus interceding to protect them from something that they could not endure yet. And they did get to that point. We see Hebrews chapter 11, the testimony of the endurance of these persons. Hebrews 11, 37-39. And they were stoned and sawn in two. They were tempted and they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of which the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, all of these things having gained approval through their faith. These same men were martyred because they got to the point where they could endure the, those trials. And it is after that, after that we see Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, that, that famous verse, and therefore, looking back on these men who now patiently and trustingly endured very horrific trials, being put to death horrific ways, he says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us 
Flay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race which is set before us. A continuing state of enduring should grant one a sense of peace as well. Because it puts on display a key aspect of our salvation, and particularly the perseverance of the saints. The Bible makes it clear that once someone comes to know the Lord as Savior, there is no separating them from God. Once saved, always saved. And this is due to the three elements that are at play in our salvation. Those three elements being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are saved because of the sovereignty of God. John chapter 10. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. God is more, more powerful than anything else in this universe and He guarantees that we've been placed in Jesus' hand and no one, nothing is going to separate us from that. We're saved by the sovereignty of God. We also persevere because of the current ministry of Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he was able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We are saved by the sovereignty of God, and we, we endure this life because we have somebody interceding for us before God. But we are also sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13-14 and Ephesians 4, 30 all speak of the Holy Spirit who seals us for the day of redemption. The entire Trinity is at work in us, pushing us to endure. There are a lot of people who have personal assistant teams that work behind them. But can you think of a better personal assistant team than the Trinity? God preserves His people. That's just the simple fact of the matter. You endure a trial and get through the end and you haven't fallen away and that is the pattern of your life. Take great confidence in that because that is an indicator that you are truly saved. James commands us to consider trials with all joy. So as command, we see the reason because we will endure Third, we're going to see the result. And let endurance have its perfect result so that by it you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. A better translation of let is that perseverance must finish its work. And let endurance, let it finish what it's doing. This carries with the idea of, of enduring trials with a submissive will that we should not try and short-circuit the process. Well, how, do, how do we short-circuit the process of, of, of enduring? Well, we complain, we whine, we get the poor me's. Oh, poor me, my life is so hard right now. Well, all these things do is shift the focus off of the sovereignty of God and our trust in Him and puts it on ourselves. We are told by James that we, are, that we may be perfect and complete if we endure 
This is not referring to absolute perfection that we receive upon death. This has to do with becoming a mature individual. Psalm 131 verses 1 through 2. David writes, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed, I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child resting against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. David writing later on in his life, David had a lot of difficult things happen in his life, some of which were his own fault because sometimes David played the fool. I can say that because I'm a bigger fool than David. So he brought things on himself, but we see at this point in his life, David understood. David got it. He'd grown up and matured in his faith, and thanks in part to the trials he faced in his life. And now, he calls himself a weaned child. Somebody who's grown up in the same way we too should grow up in our salvation. He says that he rests against he used the, the analogy that rests against his mother's his mother, because David again is still relying on God. This should be the goal of all believers to mature in our salvation, not to remain in an infantile state in our faith, but to grow and to look at life through the lens of eternity. We see this in the life of another biblical character. Aside from Jesus' death on the cross, there's probably, probably no man faced a greater trial of faith than did Abraham. Genesis 22 records this account. Genesis 22 records for us the account of God instructing Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. The promised son. God had promised Abraham a, multi, a great nation And had specified that it was Isaac who they were coming through. And now comes to Abraham and says, you know Isaac, the son of promise, I want you to kill him. What? Surely there must have been confusion on Abraham's part. God, I don't have any descendants yet aside from Isaac. Um, The what? You want me to what? But Abraham had learned from a lifetime of walking with the Lord that God could be trusted. And so what he does, the very next morning, he gets up early, saddles up the camels and the donkeys and all that, and takes Isaac on the three-day journey to Mount Moriah, or the modern-day Temple Mount, for those of you who uh, are looking for a modern reference of that place. Surely this must have confused him. But Abraham had learned, God is faithful. His faith in this event is shown to us not just in his actions of actually going through. He gets the dagger and he's going to kill his son. But we see in Hebrews chapter 11 that this goes beyond and gives us an insight into Abraham's mind that he had such great faith that he believed that God could raise one from the dead. But in this period of, of history, that had never happened before. But Abraham knew that something was going to happen because he understood that God could be trusted. If he said a great nation was coming through Isaac, it was coming, regardless of what happened. Because God is powerful enough to, to fulfill his purposes. We go through difficult times in our life. John MacArthur gives us, gives in his commentary on the book of James, eight reasons why he believes that we go through trials, and I think it's something helpful, so I'm just going to read them off real quick. 
It says they test the strength of our faith. They humble us so that our faith does not become a presumption or spiritual self-satisfaction. They break our dependence on worldly things. They call us to an eternal and heavenly hope. They reveal what it is that we truly love. They teach us to value God's blessings. They develop endurance for greater usefulness. And they enable us to be a better minister to others. I really like this list because it underscores a key truth about biblical enduring of trials that we may not think of. Do you hear anything in there? Or in, in James's text? Or in the account of Abraham of something that God got out of us enduring trials? What, what does God get? Does, does he gain some supernatural knowledge that he didn't already have? The purpose of trials are not for God. They're for us. The point of Abraham's trial was not so that he could really see if Abraham was really one of his children. It wasn't, he was going, okay, I need to know. Does Abraham really trust me? I know. I'll put him to the test. No. The purpose of that trial was so that Abraham understood where it was his hope and trust really lied. We're full of doubts. And God uses trials to press us the same way a wine press presses on the grapes and out comes the juices that form the wine. God uses them and we see with how we endure trials what comes out of us. Is it genuine faith or is it fake faith? Only a true believer will endure. False believers will fall away. They don't stick around when difficult times come because that's not fun. There's a poem by the Victorian author Robert Browning. It says, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way. But I was none the wiser for the things she had to say. And I walked a mile with sorrow. A narrow word, said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. By his own confession, Robert Browning was not a believer, but his parents were. And had, I'm not going to say beaten into him, the biblical concept of the purpose behind difficult situations. But Browning understood that suffering served a purpose, and it serves a much, much greater purpose in the life of a believer. If you are experiencing a trial in your life, hold fast, endure. Let God do his work. This joy... Again, it's only for believers because only believers have the foundation of something to put joy in, to have joy in. Someone who's never been regenerated by the blood of the risen Savior can never experience or understand the true joy a believer can have in difficult situations. Romans 5, and I'll end with this. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, though through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tri- tribulations, knowing that the 
tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, a proven character. And a proven character, hope. And this is not like earthly hope. That we, oh, like I hope it doesn't rain today. Verse 5, and this hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Guys, we have a hope that goes beyond and is greater than any difficulty we can face in our life. This life is temporary. And we have a great hope in something that is to come. In a power that goes far beyond anything that can be accomplished in this world. Pray that that is our perspective. As difficulties are coming, do we know how to handle them? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are holy, that you are greater than the things of this world. I pray, Lord, that as we encounter difficulties in our life, that we maintain an eternal perspective of the hope that you've given us, that you would allow it to bring us joy in the midst of dark times that we would draw closer to you than we ever did before. I pray again for the requests to mention today and for the upcoming service, Lord, and for the baptism service tonight. We're so thankful that you moved in the lives of these people that are going to be baptized tonight. We're thankful for our salvation in you. And I pray that as we dismiss from here that in our working lives and normal lives that we are just a reflection of your glory to the people in our lives, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen.